our 200-year-long standing policy of military non-alignment has served Sweden well. But the issue at hand is whether military non-alignment will keep serving as well. If you know only one thing about Sweden and Finland's position in the world, it's probably this. They believe in staying neutral. They have never been a part of NATO, the military alliance that binds many countries in Europe with the U.S. and Canada. But now that is about to change. It is a historic day. Uh, of course, we have for years uh, been very in very close cooperation with NATO. We are close partners to NATO, but it is a historic decision that we will join NATO. In this surprising turnaround, Sweden and Finland are applying to join NATO. Its members promise that an attack on one is an attack on all, meaning that if any NATO country is attacked, they will come to each other's defense. And that solidarity is something that's starting to look pretty attractive to these two countries that are really close to Russia. I think one of the great ironies of Russia's invasion of Ukraine is that Vladimir Putin has done more to strengthen and embolden the NATO alliance than anyone ever could. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. He's been reporting on the war in Ukraine and how it's reshaping the geopolitical landscape. Right before the invasion, it was a question of what, what was the usefulness of NATO in, in the modern era? I mean, what, were the, what was the nature of this alliance? Would countries really come to the mutual assistance of other countries if they were threatened? Would they make good on the pact? I think now we'd have to say the answer is unequivocally yes. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 17th. Today, what this historic move means for the U.S. and the world, and how the war in Ukraine going badly for Russia could make Putin even more dangerous. So, Shane, in the past few days, we have seen Finland and Sweden, these two countries that have long been neutral, that they have started making moves to join NATO. Why are these countries changing their neutral stance now, and why do they want to join NATO? Well, the short answer to that is Russia invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. And these countries, Sweden and Finland, now have calculated that it is better for them in the long term, it is better for protecting themselves against a possible Russian invasion to join in NATO. So if Russia were to try to do in Finland or Sweden, what it's done in Ukraine, the other NATO members would come to those countries' defense. I think officials in Europe, including NATO member countries, are very afraid that Russia could try and attack them or mount an invasion even like we saw in Ukraine. Even though the invasion has not gone well, Russia is still a powerful military. It has a lot of people it could conscript. It could take some years and regroup itself. And, you know, it's hard to overstate the degree to which Russia's invasion of Ukraine has fundamentally changed the assumptions about the nature of security in Europe. Hmm. He has kind of blown apart the security architecture. And a lot of the 
maybe assurances or just kind of presumptions that some of these non-aligned states had that it was better for them to not antagonize Russia by joining NATO because Putin might see that as a threat. Those assumptions have been basically blown apart. Everything's been turned upside down now. Hmm. And they calculate that it is better for them in the long term because Russia could try this again. And so that is what is leading to this fundamental change in the decision of Finland and Sweden to join the NATO alliance. And yet I imagine that the risk of antagonizing Russia by having these two other countries join NATO, that that risk hasn't gone away. I mean, is there a real concern here that this could be a move that incites some further action or violence from Vladimir Putin? It's a great question. And I think to answer it sort of makes us question whether the assumption that Putin did view NATO as a genuine threat was ever real. Put me in the camp that says that that's a pretty flimsy argument, that his invasion of Ukraine was never really about NATO expansion, because NATO is a defensive alliance. It's not a uh, an, an offensive group. It doesn't go around invading other countries. And, you know, policymakers and historians will debate that. But I think we can look at the fact that these two countries, which had previously said they did not want to join NATO because they didn't want to antagonize Russia, now that they are, in fact, joining NATO, He's been fairly muted in his response to this. Putin has said that he has no problems with these countries' decisions to join NATO, that he does not see an immediate threat to them joining the alliance. Which is kind of a 180 statement from the way that he has portrayed the addition of other states and former Soviet satellites or former Soviet republics into NATO, when he described them very much as a threat. Now we hear him saying, nope, there's no immediate threat from this. And you could read that probably in a number of ways. It's hard to see what's going on inside Putin's head. It's notable to me, though, that at this moment when the war in Ukraine is going so badly for him, he's not talking about opening another front in that war. Mm. You don't hear him coming out and saying, and now we will, you know, we will march into Helsinki and, you know, and we will bomb Stockholm. He's not doing that. He is not rattling the saber, and he seems to be taking a very different rhetorical posture than the one he's struck in the past, particularly when it came to the question of whether Ukraine should join NATO. So how has NATO responded to this? Do NATO members want Sweden and Finland to join their ranks? They do. NATO members and the NATO Secretary General are very enthusiastic about Sweden and Finland joining hmm. the alliance. So we've heard very positive comments coming from the NATO side and from the U.S. side about this planned uh, admission of Finland and Sweden. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken uh, had very good things to say about it. He was very enthusiastic. Well, I can say this much. I heard almost across the board very strong support for Finland and NATO joining the alliance if that's what they choose to do. Um, and I'm very confident that we will reach consensus on that. The Secretary General Stoltenberg of NATO, also very positive on this. NATO is stronger than ever. Europe and North America are solidly united. About the only member of NATO that's really raising any questions right now is Turkey. Turkey has some longstanding gripes with those countries, you know, over political and diplomatic matters. Um, President Erdogan has said some things about, you know, these are... You know, I think he feels that some of them are, are too sympathetic to opposition forces in Turkey. But, you know, it's important to remember that while NATO has to approve this as a bloc, we're not hearing any real concerns, at least right now, 
coming out of Brussels or coming out of Washington about Turkey sort of throwing up a roadblock at this. You know, mm. This may be an opportunity for President Erdogan to old, air some old grievances. But at the end of the day, it seems as of right now, officials are thinking that Turkey will not try to stop this from happening. So you're seeing a very unified front coming out uh, in addition to the leaders of Finland and Sweden themselves saying how what a good idea this is, how necessary it is. Everyone, I think, is couching this as something that is positive for NATO, positive for European security, and necessary in the face of Russia's aggression. Well, can I ask why when they were so negative about Ukraine joining? I mean, they're clearly not just like welcoming everyone with open arms. It's a great question. So Sweden and Finland fundamentally are different than Ukraine for a few reasons when it comes to NATO membership. One is that Sweden and Finland already have sophisticated modern militaries that actually are fairly integrated in many ways already into the NATO architecture. They're not officially members of the alliance. And so importantly, that mutual defense pact would not apply to them if they were attacked, nor would they be obliged to come to the assistance of a NATO country. Um, but they have big militaries. They have big artillery components. Finland shares a big border with Russia. So they've already kind of been integrated with the, the, the West from a military perspective. There are actually NATO drills going on right now in Europe and Estonia in which uh, Sweden and Finland are participating. And if you look at the eastern part of Finland, it is a giant border with Russia. Hmm. This is a country that is right up against Russia and shares a border along some very strategic places in Russia as well. Uh, we think about like up in the north of Russia in Murmansk, you know, where you have submarine bases and, and, and naval assets. So these are two countries that are in a, a geographic location that is highly strategic. Uh, the threat to them from Russia is real. It's been real for a long time. That hasn't changed their neutrality posture, but that's been a big part of why they've been neutral is because they don't want to antagonize Russia. Notably, what that will do, of course, is, is add to the, the NATO border now with Russia. This is going to add a lot more real estate that's within the territory of NATO, uh, which tells you something about, I think, why the member countries and the leadership of NATO are so enthusiastic to have Sweden and Finland mm. in. These are two countries that share a lot of border with Russia, have very capable militaries. They're democratic countries. They want to be a part of mutual defense. Those are all positive things on the checklist from NATO's perspective. And what is the process for this to actually happen? I mean, how quickly does Sweden and Finland officially become a NATO member? And what are the steps that they have to take to do that? They've applied for fast track membership, which means that, you know, if this might be a process that would take a year or so, I think we can conceivably think it could take some months. Uh, it's not going to be protracted. There's not going to be a long debate over this. Um, there may be some things that they have to commit to doing with regards to like defense spending and troop readiness. But those are clearly things that the Finland and Sweden are prepared to do. Their technology is, you know, effectively interoperable. There's not going to be a lot of technological hurdles either uh, once the paperwork is signed. If Sweden and Finland carry forward with this and actually do become members of NATO, I, I wonder what you think that says about this moment politically or internationally in terms of thinking about the benefits of being part of institutions like NATO or even the United Nations. I mean, is this a moment where countries are looking around and rethinking the calculus on strength in numbers and what it means to be part of these these organizations? Russia's invasion of Ukraine strengthened that alliance and strengthened Western powers 
fundamentally, you know, to their core. We saw this, I mean, within hours of the the first attacks by Russia in Ukraine with Germany stepping forward and, and basically halting development on this massive pipeline, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, taking steps that to that point, really, it was difficult to imagine a country as big as Germany that has so much dependence on Russia for its energy ever taking and kind of effectively, you know, not cutting ties entirely with Russia, but really, I mean, changing the relationship and fracturing it in an important way. And now I think everyone understands and believes that NATO is the security guarantor of Europe, which is always what it was designed to be. And remember, this was an alliance that was set up to to be a defensive pact in the face of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact member countries. And now NATO has kind of proved its worth. You've seen all of these member countries come together unanimously to sanction Russia, to provide military aid to Ukraine, to stand by it politically and diplomatically. So Putin has become, in a way, kind of like the the best thing that happened to NATO (laughs) for, for many, many years. And I think for Sweden and Finland in particular, What's changing their decision-making here and what's changing their calculus and moving them away from neutrality is they've seen that when another country is invaded, and remember, not even a NATO country in this case, the way that Europe and the United States and Great Britain can come together as an alliance and stand against Russia. After the break, Shane and I talk about where the war in Ukraine stands and how a humiliated Putin could be a more dangerous Putin. We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. So, Shane, you and I have had a lot of conversations about how this war in Ukraine has gone pretty differently than I think many people expected, and certainly than I think Russia uh, and Vladimir Putin expected. So tell me about what the state of the war is right now, especially in the eastern part of the country where we're seeing Russian troops become more, more focused. The invasion has essentially been a failure in that it did not accomplish Putin's objective of toppling Volodymyr Zelensky's government, replacing it with one that is friendly to the Kremlin, and controlling Ukraine. So that's that has not happened and is likely not going to happen. So Putin kind of retrenched. He moved his forces away from the central part of, of Ukraine and away from Kiev to the east of the country. And he focused on Donbass, this region kind of in the southeast of the country, as well as these other two um, provinces of uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, which are sometimes referred to as these breakaway republics that have a, you know, a kind of more Russian-speaking population and have been broadly kind of seen as maybe more friendly to to Russia. Perhaps that has changed quite a bit since Russia invaded them. Mm. But he was really consolidating this battle in the east. And the thinking was, as of a couple of weeks ago, that's, that's where we were going to see kind of Putin make his next stand. 
That, though, also has not been going well. The British government came out with an estimate in recent days that Putin may have actually lost a third of his forces that he committed. Wow. That's pretty dramatic. We are hearing all kinds of reports coming out of the East that not only are many Russian soldiers dying, but they are failing to seize certain objectives. They're not taking the territory that they thought they would be able to do, um, that Putin may be even scaling back this planned offensive on the east to maybe only consolidating power in one of those republics. So this, again, scenario was playing out where we had these kind of dreaded expectations of, you know, Russian military might bearing down on Ukraine, crushing the Ukrainian defenses in the east. That hasn't happened. The Ukrainian military is proving highly capable against the Russian adversary. They are being well-equipped with weapons from the United States and its allies, and they are not just putting up a brave fight. I mean, they're beating back the Russians, which now raises the question of whether or not the war in the East is going to continue grinding on, Hmm. uh, or, you know, whether possible, you might even see something like a Ukrainian victory. We'll have to see, but the, the fight is not going as Putin planned, and that's been the story of the war since the beginning. But is there a cost to that if Russia were to lose in a way that was so disastrous or embarrassing for them on the global stage? I mean, I would imagine that there are consequences. Yeah. And it's interesting to hear now the kind of different rhetorical posture that you're hearing from Ukraine, from the United States and Great Britain, and then from some of the key allies like Germany and Italy. Ukraine is still saying basically no negotiation, no surrender, no negotiation or truce that results in Ukraine having to cede any of its territory to Russia. Now, practically speaking, might they be willing to say, fine, you can keep Crimea, your troops were already on it? Maybe. But the posture from Kyiv is we're not negotiating with you because we're beating you, essentially. The United States is still kind of, you know, in in UK, I think, too, is kind of in that camp. You know, you heard Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin say recently that the United States needs to keep arming Ukraine so that it can do enough damage to the Russian military that Russia cannot pose this kind of threat anymore, that we need to diminish Russia. So that's pretty aggressive. There's not a lot of room for compromise. But what you are hearing out of Germany, Italy, France is the need to come to some sort of peaceful resolution quickly, to have a ceasefire. And I think if you read between the lines there, and I don't want to put too much into the mouths of these officials, but I think what they're contemplating is some kind of negotiated settlement that saves some face for Russia, that avoids the humiliation that would come from Putin being beaten back, you know, thousands of troops killed, his military kind of in tatters. And I think that officials in those countries worry that a humiliated Russia could become a more dangerous Russia in the future. Mm, what, what, What do you mean by that? Putin could pull back. He could regroup. But remember, too, that, you know, Russia invaded Ukraine in 2014. And eight years passed between that seizure and annex of Crimea and those kind of planting of Russian forces and Russian aligned forces in the east between the most recent invasion of the whole country. So Putin has a demonstrated history of being able to move in militarily, kind of stop where he is, build back up again with future ambitions, and then go at it another time. So no one in the West, I think, is taking any comfort by the short-term kind of disaster of the Russian military campaign in Europe and thinking that this means that Russia will not pose any threat to Ukraine in the future. In point of fact, that's precisely why Sweden and Finland are joining NATO now. 
you know, when we talk about what it looks like for Putin to potentially lose this war in a very public way, I mean, one thing that I've heard people talk about, and I, I don't know enough to know whether it's really a thing we should be scared of, is nuclear weapons. Like, is there a world where Vladimir Putin is mad and just mad enough that he's like, and I'm just going to bomb Ukraine or somewhere else with nuclear weapons in a way that is going to be disastrous. Is that a thing that, that people are actually worried about? When I talk to U.S. officials about the possibility that Putin could use nuclear weapons, they do view that as a remote possibility, but it is one for which the consequences would be so dire and so disastrous that it cannot be dismissed out of hand. So I talked to a senior administration official about this not long ago who said that he did not believe that Putin would use nuclear weapons unless he felt some kind of an existential threat to his regime. I mean, that he really personally felt that somehow his future as the president of Russia or or the government's stability was riding on the court conduct of the war and that he felt that using a nuclear weapon could turn things around for him. And to be clear, there is a scenario in which Putin does something like uses a tactical nuclear weapon, kills a ton of Ukrainian forces, or even blows up a city, and the world sort of hits the pause button and says, okay, you know, this guy may be now irrational. He's demonstrated that he is willing to use these weapons. We've got to wind this war down quickly. And Russian military doctrine envisions that kind of a scenario. It has a principle of what's sometimes referred to as escalate to de-escalate. And what it kind of means is that, you know, if you demonstrate to the world, put it in my own terms here, that you are the one who's crazy enough to use the nuclear weapon first, everyone else will have to cede to your demands because they don't want to get into a nuclear war with you. I don't hear a lot of talk right now that people think that he's on the verge of doing that. But if you look at kind of Every step along the way of the war so far of how the United States and its allies, but particularly the Biden administration, have decided how far to go, how deeply to get into this war, down to the question of what kind of weapons do we provide? You know, anti-tank missiles, those are okay. Fighter jets, no, they're not, because there's this dreaded word again, escalation. We don't want to escalate the conflict. And what's behind that is that kind of unthinkable scenario in which Putin feels so backed into a corner or the situation has, quote unquote, escalated, to borrow that phrase again, so much that he feels he has no other option but to use this ultimate weapon. So that's always out there. And Putin has not really taken that possibility off the table in a meaningful way. We talk so much about how Putin is reacting to these losses. But I'm also curious about the Russian people. And I know that there is so much of a gap between what reality is and is what is often being communicated to Russian people, especially through state-owned media. But but is there a sense that they understand that they are losing or that they have feelings about, about what these losses have looked like for them? We are seeing more signs that the kind of information roadblock that Putin has been trying to throw up to keep the Russian people from knowing what is going on in Ukraine, that that is coming down, that the the dam is breaking, if you like. Um, Notably, just in recent days, we've seen some prominent bloggers who blog about the Russian military coming out and saying the military is failing. And they're blaming the commanders. They're blaming the people at the top for launching a uh, haphazard campaign that wasn't well-directed. So it is coming out now more. It's getting harder and harder for Putin to hide the fact of how 
poorly this war has gone in Ukraine. You can't hide a disaster of this magnitude forever. This isn't just a, you know, small military operation in a sort of tiny corner of the globe. He committed upwards of 200,000 forces to this, and many, many Russian soldiers uh, and military personnel have died. That is not something that you can easily keep a secret. Shane Harris, thank you so much. You're welcome. Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security for The Post. On Monday, Ukraine's military said it's ending its combat mission in the strategic port city of Mariupol. That city has been bombarded for months by the Russian military, and Russia effectively won control of Mariupol weeks ago. But there was a holdout of Ukrainian troops in a steel plant. These fighters, trapped in tunnels under the plant, became a desperate symbol of Ukraine's will to fight and die for their land. Now they have finally surrendered. And while Russian officials are portraying this as a key victory, Ukrainian officials say that these holdouts changed the course of the war in Ukraine's favor by tying up Russian forces for weeks. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show is produced by Sabi Robinson, mixed by Sean Carter, and edited by Maggie Penman. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, The Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.